On primetime politics tonight, Quebec introduces the country's first law specifically aimed at blocking anti-vaccination protests. How will it work and will it stand up to possible constitutional challenges? We'll get the answers from this human rights lawyer. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney is under fire over his handling of the growing COVID-19 crisis. We'll ask this political scientist whether Kenney can survive and how would Alberta's response to the pandemic change under a different Conservative leader? And our panel of party commentators will be here to discuss the latest post-election fallout and more. Stay with us. And let's begin in the province of Quebec, where the Legault government has become Canada's first jurisdiction to introduce a bill to block anti-vaccination protests. The bill would prohibit protests outside hospitals, schools, daycares, COVID-19 vaccine sites, and anyone protesting within 50 metres of those locations would face a fine, and the fines could uh, rise to as much as $12,000 if it involves making threats or intimidating people coming or going from those sites. The bill also bans organizing or inciting protests and gives judges the power to issue injunctions to prevent those protests. The government says the measures are temporary and they have the backing of the opposition parties and hope to pass the bill quickly. Here's Quebec Premier Francois Legault. It's never easy to uh, um, say you cannot manifest, you cannot go on the street. It, 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 it's, it's not something... Uh, that you can do every day. So you have to be careful. Uh, we want to make sure that people will not win trying to say that the law is unacceptable, uh, that uh, we cannot enforce it. Second, we wanted to make sure that we don't use that only for schools, but also for kindergarten, for hospitals. So we wanted to do it correctly. And I think that also we need to have the support of all the, the other parties. And I think that uh, it's the right time. Pearl Iliadis is a human rights lawyer and associate professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University in Montreal. She's with me now. Uh, professor, uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me about this new bill in Quebec. Premier Legault says he's convinced this bill to ban anti-vaccination protests strikes the right balance between, uh, look, the right to protest and the need to protect healthcare workers and patients. How do you see it? I've been very public about the fact that I think that it's important to have some form of restriction uh, on public assemblies and uh, demonstrations that don't really have a connection to decision makers and that Filming children, for example, and going into schools is very problematic. Anything that blocks people from accessing healthcare facilities or intimidates them in the current context uh, is problematic. So Bill 105, it strikes to me in some respects, uh, does have a positive and uh, important uh, role to play right now in controlling the current situation. Uh, there are some areas where I think it's extremely broad, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it would be very helpful uh, for the government to think carefully about uh, making sure that the number of institutions and the types of institutions uh, that might be covered by this bill uh, are indeed uh, sufficiently restricted so that they meet constitutional requirements. Tell me more about that. How do you think it needs to be you know, clearly focused on what it's actually trying to deal with? So the bill uh, applies to virtually all institutions that are health facilities or social services, uh, for example, um, under Quebec law, under existing definitions of institutions in Quebec law. 
Uh, and it appears to be much larger than uh, schools, uh, daycares, and hospitals. There are, for example, universities that could be covered by this as well. So I'm, I'm a little concerned about the range of institutions that might go beyond those delivering direct services, mm. um, which is the first area that I, I have a concern about. Uh, I had initially thought or understood that um, there was some sort of a restriction on the ability to to uh, seek injunctions uh, in response to the bill, but in fact, the right to seek an injunction is indeed provided for uh, under the under the bill. Um, but the third area that I do have concerns about is that it appears that all types of demonstrations that are connected with any of the aspects that might touch on any of the orders issued under the emergency power legislation um, or orders in council potentially, or ministerial directives. There's been hundreds of them uh, over the last year might be covered. And and I, I'm not sure whether or not under the way the bill is currently structured, whether you could have a situation where people have been affected beyond the sort of anti-vax campaigns right. uh, who might want to demonstrate and might get caught by the provisions of this bill. Right. So the, con- the concern would be that, uh, it, in fact, it may be so broad uh, that, uh, that it's going beyond uh, trying to deal with concerns around anti-vaxxer protests and access to, to clinics and hospitals and so on. Right. So, and 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 if, if it would be helpful, I think a practical example might might um, uh, sort of talk about where I'm. I have a concern. Mm. Uh, in in previous uh, orders in council, for example, this government has ordered uh, that collective agreements or certain aspects of collective agreements uh, are were suspended with regard to uh, certain types of job classification. So, for example, somebody could be ordered to go out and deliver a certain type of service that wasn't in their collective agreement, okay? So so the right to right. freedom of association was, was therefore restricted. That's not really the kind of thing that this bill appears to be getting at, but because of the broad way in which it's drafted, uh, I wonder uh, whether or not that kind of activity, because it is generally included in pandemic measures, might somehow be captured under this bill. Fair enough. Uh, Look, some people will look at this legislation and say, look, there are already provincial laws that prevent people from blocking access to schools and hospitals and clinics. So why is this bill needed? What, you know, what specifically, uh, you know, has has sort of set the set the scene or made the case for why these kinds of measures are needed? So that's a really interesting question. So it is true, for example, right now that under the Act Respecting Health and Social Services, you're not allowed to block access. My understanding of the concern is that in addition to potentially blocking access, there were also people who might not have been blocking access. They might have been on the sidewalk, but they were close enough to intimidate or harass or attempt to sort of persuade people. And it's my understanding that it's that additional behavior um, that may not get caught under uh, or or envisaged under current legislation that that they're really trying to get at here. Opponents of uh, of these measures, uh, we've heard from them saying, you know, that uh, protections of uh, freedom of speech are being sacrificed in in this uh, in this bill. Uh, is that how you see it? Is this a is this a freedom of speech issue or is this a freedom of assembly issue? I think it's clearly a freedom of peaceful assembly issue. It's Section 2C of the Canadian Charter. Uh, you know, I, I always think it's interesting how 
issues around demonstrations get cast as freedom of expression issues. This is not a freedom of expression issue directly. People can say whatever they want to say. The issue here is where they're saying it. And the right to peaceful assembly is is specifically about occupying physical space and where you're doing it. So this is really, I think, a fantastic example of how uh, the right to peaceful assembly and freedom of expression um, are, are, are different. I mean, obviously, there's an expressive element to this, but the, the, the core right, I think, that's at play here really is the right to peaceful, uh, peaceful assembly. Okay, uh, let's finish on this. Uh, is it your expectation that um, this law would be challenged in courts? And, uh, and if so, what, what are the arguments uh, you think the government lawyers would use to defend it? Well, given how vocal some of the uh, folks are who have been protesting, uh, my guess is that there may well be a constitutional challenge. And it's part of our democracy that even if we don't like what people are saying, even if our patience has run out, as I think the premier had mentioned, uh, that we should tolerate peaceful assembly and we should tolerate uh, expression that we don't like. And that, I think, remains uh, a bedrock of our society, and it should be a bedrock of our society. But in cases where the rights of other people are affected, where children, for example, for no reason that's connected with, with the bill, you know, demonstrating against children doesn't achieve anything. There's no political message other than potentially harassing or intimidating children um, that may be, may be in place. So it seems to me that this bill in general strikes uh, a good balance. I am a little concerned about uh, how wide the net has been spread. But normally what the courts will do in these circumstances is they will read down uh, the bill in, in, in the event they decide there is a constitutional infringement, meaning that they'll interpret it in a way that is necessary and sufficient for the aims of the legislation to be met. All right. Uh, lots to watch for as this uh, bill makes its way through the Quebec legislature. And Indeed. I appreciate you giving your perspective for us today and helping us understand what's been, uh, what's been happening here. Uh, Professor Eliadis, uh, thanks for your time. Take care. Not at all, Peter. Thank you very much. Well, COVID cases continue to surge in two of Canada's western provinces. Saskatchewan health authorities are being forced now to put key medical procedures on hold as hospitals and intensive care units are filling with COVID patients, most of them unvaccinated. And in Alberta, the COVID crisis there has cast a long shadow over the political future of the Premier Jason Kenney. He managed to put off a caucus revolt this week over his handling of the pandemic, but it's not clear how long that reprieve will last. Today, the federal government pledged to provide help for Alberta, uh, whether it's uh, Canadian Forces medical personnel, airlifts, or the Red Cross. Dwayne Brad is a political science professor at Mount Royal University in Calgary. He joins me now. Professor Brad, uh, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. First of all, I appreciate it. What is the latest on Jason Kenney's efforts to keep his job? So there was an emergency caucus meeting yesterday in uh, Calgary. The Alberta uh, government has offices uh, in Calgary as well as the legislature in Edmonton. There was a non-confidence motion that was put on the uh, floor, uh, but there was a big debate about whether it should be by secret ballot. And in the end, it got pulled mm. because Premier Kenny agreed to expedite uh, a leadership review. Okay. When I initially heard that there would be a leadership review amongst the entire UCP party, not just the caucus, they have an AGM scheduled for November, this November, 
And so that's when I thought it would be. But now it sounds like it'll be at the 2022 um, uh, AGM, but they're moving that from the fall to the spring. So sometime in March, there will be a leadership review of Jason Kenney amongst so, the entire party. Yeah. So what do you think is the reason the, that the revolt, uh, the revolt fizzled? I mean, you talked about, was it this whole issue of, a, of an open vote in caucus? Is that where everybody went, uh, oh, I think wait a minute? part of it. I, I think never underestimate the political infighting skills of, of Jason Kenney. It's what he does best. And uh, without being in the caucus room, without understand, uh, because there's confidence within the caucus, uh, confidentiality, I think he, he told them that he was selected as leader by the party, not by the MLAs. And therefore, that should go to uh, the grassroots to determine the fate. Uh, I think he also said, you know, given the factions within the party over... Uh, there's a part of it that believes he broke his promise by bringing in a vaccine mandate and a vaccine passport after promising that he would never do so. But there's another faction that believes that the government acted way too late, acted a month at least too late. And that has led to a spike in hospitalizations and in deaths. We now have over a thousand COVID patients in hospital. ICUs yeah. are at capacity. Uh, and uh, yesterday, 20 people died of COVID. And the day before, it was 29 people. Yeah. So there's this faction within the party. And I think Kenny was trying to make the case that whoever comes in as a new leader, if there is a new leader, is going to be stuck with that. So let's give Kenny time to, to get through it and then bring in someone else. At least that's what I think right. some of the arguments Like, do you think, so are we at a point where the premier's fate uh, sometime down the road here uh, is a given, that it's just a question of time? Or uh, will Jason Kenney fight it all the way? And, and could, yeah. he, could he come through this? Well, this is the interesting argument. There's going to be those who believe, all right, we boxed Kenny in. We've got a timetable of when he will leave. But Jason Kenney, I think, is, as I said, a skilled uh, backroom politician, and this gives him six months uh, to get ready for a leadership review, and let's see how that works out. In, in the hopes that by the uh, by March that the fourth wave has receded, and things turn around for him. So it's it's a delaying tactic. Um, I would not expect. I think Kenny will continue to fight, and this was a fighting move. I mean, he learned from Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper prorogued Parliament in 2008 because he was on the verge of a non-confidence vote. And it, while that prorogation occurred, the coalition collapsed under its own weight. So I think Kenny thinks that the opposition to him will collapse given enough time. Okay. The problem with all of this is nobody is thinking about the health and well-being of Albertans, mm -hmm. right? This is all about little gamesmanship within the party uh, as opposed to dealing with a pandemic that is raging. Okay, talk to me about that, because it, it, it strikes me as uh, a little bit curious. So we, we've had a pandemic now for for a long time in this country, and I, I guess why, you know, uh, does it speak to the leadership of Jason Kenney? If, if so this, this, there, far, there this is, far into the pandemic, there are still factions deciding how the government would should respond to a crisis. There, there's been unique features about how Alberta has responded to uh, COVID, right? So back in June, uh, um, the government announced that they were going to be open for summer. Um, July 1st, they opened mm -hmm. everything up. They dropped almost every restriction 
They had the Calgary Stampede, and Jason Kenney was on record going around the province saying, we're open for summer, open forever. They were, they, they were fundraising off of that. They were selling open for summer hats. Uh, and it was seen as now, in retrospect, premature. They knew by late July that the data didn't match um, their, their optimism. Right. Uh, and certainly by mid-August, we started to see the spikes. Alberta's been hurt worse by the fourth wave than the other three waves. Uh, and as I said, the, the death numbers are higher than the third wave. They're higher than the first wave. They're not quite at the second wave level yet, but we're now relying on other provinces to take uh, intensive care patients. Okay, we're now relying on other provinces to send us doctors and nurses. They've had to postpone elective surgeries to dedicate resources to, to COVID. They had to reduce the surgery capacity at the children's hospital to deal with COVID. Yeah. Let, let me ask you about, uh, you touched on it. Uh, Jason Kenney asked the federal government for help, or his government did it, one of his ministers, uh, to airlift COVID patients out of Alberta to hospitals and other provinces. You touched on that, but that request uh, came Tuesday right after the results of the federal election were in and the election was over. Uh, that timing's generated a lot of controversy for the premier. How come? Because it was clear that he was trying to stay out of the federal election to support Aaron O'Toole's campaign, that uh, Jason Kenney had been seen now as a liability in conservative circles, both in Alberta and outside of Alberta. So he waits till the day after the federal election to request federal help with COVID and to replace his health minister. We also um, switched mm -hmm. out Tyler Shando for Jason Copping. Uh, in, in the health ministry, also on the Tuesday. And we're also hearing that while the premier spoke last Wednesday when he brought in a vaccine mandate, vaccine passport, without calling it that, it's a very complicated program to get away from calling it a passport, that he was actually supposed to wait until Tuesday to do that as well, except the health situation was just so dire, they, they couldn't wait. This shows that the partisan political games are the number one priority of, of the Kenny government, not the fact that people are dying in the province. All right, got about 30 seconds left. Uh, Alberta has a COVID crisis and a political crisis. You've talked about it all, all in one. Uh, the decisions being made by the Kenny government have put the province in the position it's in. Uh, how confident are you that it's this government, the Kenny government, that can get the province out of the crisis? I have no confidence. Um, I think he has completely lost the confidence of Albertans. There was an internal UCP poll that put his approval rating at 9%. That's single digits. Um, but the UCP caucus just, in a sense, gave him confidence yesterday. So it's like the UCP party seems to have confidence, but the Alberta people do not. And that is not going to go well for the UCP party. All right, Dwayne Bratt, uh, thanks for your time today, Professor. Good to talk to you again, and take care. Okay, thanks, Peter. Well, the dust is still settling following Monday's federal election results in this country. How quickly should Parliament return to deal with the ongoing pandemic response, leadership challenges, and moving forward on priorities and how to get through them uh, and get them forward with another minority parliament? Let's bring in our panel of party commentators back with us for the first time since the early hours of Tuesday morning after election night and hopefully somewhat rested. Susan Smith is a liberal commentator. Kate Harrison is a conservative commentator. And Kim Wright is an NDP commentator. Great to see you all again. Uh, and Kate, I want to start with you if I can. Uh, there are now public challenges to Aaron O'Toole's leadership. 
an online petition to get rid of him from a national council member. The party's now locked its candidates and MPs out of the central voter database and what some see as Aaron O'Toole's effort to protect his leadership. And today, Alberta MP, MP Chris Workington is quoted telling a local reporter, it was when our party leaders started to waffle on some of the policies that we had brought forward, uh, that he had brought forward and hadn't been clear that I believe that Canadians became uncertain and unwilling to continue to look at our party as an alternative. So how precarious do you think Mr. O'Toole's leadership is now? Well, as you know, Peter, uh, favorite pastime of the Conservative Party is to have a big pity party after an election loss and invite everybody to it, uh, including our friends in the media and anybody that wants to listen. Uh, you know, I do think that there is not the reason for doom and gloom that uh, some other Conservatives have. But I also fully acknowledge that you know, people are feeling a bit bruised and a bit raw after not winning another election. I do think overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, though, the people I talk to say that they realize that this is going to take a little bit of time, right? Aaron O'Toole has only been in the seat for a year. Uh, Justin Trudeau called the election at the time that was most advantageous to him. Uh, that showed a bit in the results. And if we want to have any kind of a path to actually building recognition and trust with voters, that is going to take a lot more than one election, mm. and it's not going to help if we keep substituting the leader in and out. All right, everybody gets a question tonight. Susan, there are all, also rumblings inside the Liberal ranks that uh, maybe the campaign could have been smoother. The result uh, could have been, maybe should have been better. Three women cabinet ministers were lost. Uh, will we see any open attacks on Justin Trudeau's leadership? No, I don't think you will at all. The prime minister uh, has just defeated his third conservative leader in a row. Uh, he brought forward a uh, progressive agenda to Canadians, and he, and he was given um, the trust of Canadians to run this minority government. So I think the caucus has confidence in him, the, the country has confidence in him, and he, he will lead a very stable minority government, uh, which I expect to last two to three years, the, the, this next government. So uh, I think no worries about that. The one thing I would just add to Kate's thing with Mr. O'Toole is he very quickly potentially faces a confidence vote in his caucus. There's something called the Reform mm. Act, which was passed by Mike, well, brought in by Michael Chong. Yep. And 20% of a caucus vote to have a, a leadership review, then there is a secret ballot. And so there's a mechanism there that he has a very immediate and urgent issue that he has to deal with within his own party. Right. We'd see that as soon as uh, presumably Parliament reconvenes. Yeah. Uh, Kim Wright, New Democrats spent uh, way more money in this campaign, $24 million in one one additional seat. Uh, so I guess I'm wondering why we're hearing so little from inside the NDP at this point about Jagmeet Singh's continued leadership and his ability to win, uh, his inability to win more seats, even with a, a far less popular liberal leader. So one of the things that we've spent a lot of time and effort in on has been about uh, increasing those writings that aren't exactly bastions of NDP support and developing that activist base, developing those those candidates and campaigns. And what we've seen across the country in almost every province and territory is overarchingly new, new Democrat vote going up, and the other parties can't exactly say that. Uh, we also spent a lot of time developing candidates that weren't just your usual suspects, your sort of old white guy club, uh, so to speak. You know, that includes a, more than 50% women, 
people from the LGBTQ community, indigenous leaders, including uh, Blake Desjardins, that, uh, you know, many uh, observers were saying, yeah, oh, New Democrats can't win in Edmonton Grouge back. Let me tell you, they can and they did. Uh, so, you know, yes, I would have liked to have seen more seats. Davenport was a heartbreaker at 165 votes. Uh, but there's a lot more okay. people on the ground, a lot more uh, excitement to, to come. Uh, Kate, uh, Kevin Wong, the former Liberal candidate, dropped by uh, the party two days before the election over a sexual assault charge the party says it didn't know about but was later dropped. His name uh, remained on the ballot, though, because of the way the, the election rules work. He, he won the riding of Spadina Fort York and says he's going to sit in the House as an independent, but uh, there's a growing backlash against him. What should happen here? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it, it kind of starts at, at the beginning, right, in terms of the vetting process that goes into, into these candidates. We have to remember, too, that Justin Trudeau did not immediately disavow Wong. Uh, he said he would pause his campaign, and then it took uh, about 48 hours for him to be kicked to the curb when the Liberals realized that they couldn't afford the, the backlash there. Um, you know, it's just it's disheartening to have uh, this keep happening in our political system. I think uh, the vetting is part of it. Perhaps there's calls for a by-election. I'm not sure what the mm. answer is. I think that the advance votes here made uh, made a bit of a difference too, right? And if those voters could go back and change their mind, now knowing what they know now, um, it seems unfair well, yeah. that, that they wouldn't be able to change that. That's what a lot of them are saying. Uh, Susan, what should happen here? Well, it's a good question, Peter. Um, I don't think there's a provision for the, oh, I changed my mind in advance voting. How would you split that hair? Because sometimes people do change their minds even from when they cast their ballot through. Granted, this is an extenuating circumstance. Look, um, it's, it's unfortunate. It's awful. This candidate did not tell the truth to the party and the vetting process because it was a charge that was dropped. There was no way for the party to find that out. That's very disappointing. That is on the candidate. Uh, he's now sitting because his electorate voted for him, including for the people on uh, election day who went and cast their ballots there. Uh, I think he'll sit as an independent. I don't expect him to have much profile and I don't expect him to be around after another election. Right. Hopefully he'll do good work hey. for his constituents. Hey, Kim, let me hear from you on this. What should happen? Look, the, the Liberals have one of the best opposition research uh, bureaus going. Uh, the fact that they allegedly didn't know about this or didn't check charges against a candidate from a couple of years ago is about as laughable and unbelievable as Raj Saini not being yeah. vetted properly. The reality is that, you know, the question I have is how many other candidates kind of didn't go through this proper vetting process that are now sitting MPs. I think there's a lot of questions about how Parliament has not served women well uh, elected and at the staff level. That has been a perennial problem that people pay lip service to when it suits them. And I think Kevin Vuong will be about as independent as the independent senators. And that is a tragedy uh, for how do we okay. get more women involved in politics. We've got about uh, 30 seconds each here, so a pretty short answer if we can. Susan, let me let me start with you because you, you sort of touched on it earlier. How long do you think this minority parliament will last? given where we are. Maybe we're entering this, this era now of minority parliaments, given we have six parties in the country splitting votes. So how long does it last and how does it last longer if it's going to last longer? Uh, I think it will last two and maybe even three years. Canadians are in no rush to go back to the polls and there is not a single leader there that would pull the trigger anytime soon. Canadians have sent our parliamentarians back in a minority format. They like that at the moment. They want us to work together. They want every party to work together. That's male and female MPs. I sort of resent that Kim 
tarred uh, or tarnished the male MP, Liberal MPs with the brush on our previous statement. And I don't think that's okay. But two to three years, I think, Parliament, and I think they will cooperate. We'll see cooperation. Okay. Uh, see some good measures in place. All right. Kate, uh, what are your predictions? Yeah, I, I think Susan's on to something. I think people don't want to go to the polls. I also think the loud and clear message that came out of Monday night was that uh, Canadians want Parliament to work. Uh, it's up to them to figure out how it works. They don't want to be bothered with this, you know, the, the attempts to grab power, etc. cetera. Uh, but I think we have seen Justin Trudeau's last election. So in terms of the timing, uh, they're going to want to allow for a leadership race. They're going to want to allow for that person to become established. Uh, all of that takes time. So uh, I think that we're probably looking at, uh, you know, at least 24 months. All right, uh, Kim, uh, what are your thoughts? How long? Yeah, I would say it's probably in that 18 to 24 month range. But a lot of that will also depend on how the prime minister wants to come forward with the speech from the throne, with his mandate letters, with what he's he's allowing for the free flow of ideas between ministers and opposition leaders. If he comes at this fire and brimstone and hubris, uh, I think it's going to be a lot more problematic for him to find ways to govern. But in looking at the party platforms and the things that were talked about that matter to Canadians, there is some common ground that he can find. And I will say that, you know, he's got some willing ears in the New Democrats if he wants to help Canadians. All right. Uh, well, let's see how it all unfolds. Uh, it won't be too long now before we start to see if this roadmap get laid out. Thank you all for your time tonight. Uh, take care. We'll talk again. Thanks, Thank you. you. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics. I'm Peter Van Dusen. From all of us here at CPAC, thanks for watching. See you next time.